Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. On today's episode of Third Act, I talk with Carol Schrader, the entrepreneur for good. Carol was a serial tech executive, successfully rising through the ranks and then founding and selling companies on her own. Throughout her career ascent, she lacked female mentors because frankly, there weren't any. So she began looking for ways to advise young women, leaders, and founders. In Carol's third act, she's sharing what she calls the gift of entrepreneurship with young women through her investing and advising activities with Astia Angels and her involvement as a fellow in Stanford's Distinguished Careers Institute. Fellow Hawkeye, welcome to Third Act. Hey, it's great to be with you, Liz. Fellow Iowan. It's fellow Iowan. So I want to get started a little bit with, with your Iowa background and talk a little bit about uh, where you're from there, where, where'd you come from, how'd you get to Clark College, and then we'll go on from there. So I, I am from a very small farming community, but aren't they all? Um, a little town called Doherty, Iowa. And in the, what part of the state is that in? North Central. So really up, very cold, close to Minnesota. Got it. Okay. How'd you, how'd you end up at Clark College? A lot of hard work, both on my part and my parents. Few scholarships and grants, and it didn't hurt that a couple of my girlfriends, closest friends, were also going there. It was an all-women's school and a private school, so my parents thought what is a, it was a, a safe bet. <laughs> <laughs> Keep you they sequestered away there. What, to, what did you think you were going to do? What did you major in? What do you think you're going to do with that? It's kind of interesting. I went there because the, actually the, the first woman PhD in computer science was a nun at Clark College. Um, very little known fact. Um, and I thought I would go there and pursue a degree in computer science. So um, in my first semester, I took, my, took the class and uh, hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so over the course of a, a number of quarters and uh, uh, some much consternation, I, I, I ended up with a degree in management science, which is basically business. And then you end up, you go to John Deere, is that correct? That's right. That's in Moline, which is one of the mm-hmm. quad cities. And for, the, again, people who fly over the Midwest, that is in the beautiful uh, area of Moline and Rock Island, Illinois, Bettendorf and Davenport. Exactly. So four cities uh, bisected by the Mississippi River, which at that time, that had to be a great job being an Iowan. Is that true? For sure. For a, a farm girl from Iowa, that was that was really the place you know to be. And I, it was a great job. I ended up working in kind of their experimental products group as an engineering analyst. So I got to see all the new products that were coming down the pike. I kind of estimated the costs and you know, some of them failed, didn't get to market because they were too expensive to build. And from that, I, I went into a, a basically a new technology group, uh, engineering automation group. Oh, that must have been fascinating. I mean, were there, and were there very many women in the group with you? No, I was the woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Right. I was, and, and, you know, John Deere was very uh, technologically, they were uh, really ahead of a lot of other industries. They were very engineering driven. So it was a great place to be, especially at that time, because that's when computer aided everything was coming into being. All the kinds of processes on the manufacturing floor, in the design world, everything was being automated and streamlined. So it was really an interesting place to be. And that's that's ultimately why I left John Deere was I went to went back to get a graduate degree in 
in industrial engineering and focusing on computer-aided processes because I could see that that big shift was happening in the manufacturing sector. And I thought for me, with an undergrad in business, I didn't have the engineering degree. I needed to go get something more technical and at a, at a more of a you know advanced level and that that would help me out. So I took a leave of absence from Deere. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you're one of many of my guests now. So this is, I don't know what you're going to end up episode 12 or so. And many of the women share the same characteristic of we were the first woman in our group starting wherever we started out of college, but all of us sort of had a really good experience and launched yeah. from there. And I, you know, it's just really, it's sort of a fun thing that there's probably eight of us so far, including myself, who have had that background, which is, which is good. It's, you know, hopefully it's more, you know, 8,000 or 800,000 of us at this <laughs> point, not just one of eight. But uh, so after you get your degree, where do you, where do you go from there, your uh, graduate degree? Um, so that I actually, I was on a leave of absence from Deere. So I went back to John Deere. But then I was there probably six months, you know, and I just kept looking around, looking for my role models, looking at the corner offices, and none of them had women. (laughs) And so I I was a little disillusioned, you know, having invested in, in the degree and really coming back. So I started to look around and actually was recruited by a software company and went to the East Coast. So that was really my move from kind of industry into the tech world. So you eventually end up in Silicon Valley. But I I got recruited recruited to the uh, West Coast, another tech venture, right? Um, And I thought, well, you know, from the Midwest, spent some time in the East Coast, got to try the West Coast. So I thought I'd go out and spend five years. Well, 30 years later, here I am. But again, I spent the majority of my time here in Silicon Valley uh, working at you know, startup companies took a, you know, a couple of companies went public, others were acquired and it just, I found my niche basically yeah. entrepreneurial environments, building things from nothing. You know, I, you have a really interesting career in that you, you've worked for many different companies that have been acquired, you've built them or they've been bought. I mean, I assume that wasn't any, I mean, you can't really plan that uh, as, as that was happening and you look forward at your career I mean, how do you see your career progression going? Well, I think my, you know, I look at my career and I think the common denominator was change, either driven by myself or driven by market factors. I worked at seven different startups over my career and some of them, I've learned a lot of lessons and I'm not so great and some really wonderful experiences. So I really feel like I just always said yes to either a new opportunity. I didn't let geography get in my way. I didn't, you know, I just was constantly driven to kind of learn new things, find new environments where I could learn something new and, and grow and change. If, you know, as our listeners, as people are listening to this and they're at a company and they're thinking, you know, they may want to make a change. I mean, were there any signals or signs? I mean, how did you know, like, okay, it's time for me to leave this one and go to that one or take the risk to move to another startup? I think I I had to learn what to look for, but, you know, there were, there were some indicators you could, you could tell if funding wasn't, was seemed a little slow, your budget was getting cut. Other senior, me people in more senior roles were starting to look elsewhere, you know, and then you can always, I mean, I was always on the marketing side. So I was very aware 
of my competition, what was happening, what new things were, you know, being started. So I just, I think I always kind of kept a real close look at the environment. What were some of the things that maybe didn't go as well uh, as you, as you moved around to different companies? Yeah, I think there's some of the things where, you know, I had a, in one company, I had a CEO who basically the company was ready to go public and he basically shut it down. He was afraid to, to go that next step. That's something that no one could have predicted, right? Certainly I had started uh, another company and we started the company in fall of 2007 and launched the site in September of 2008 as the financial crisis happened. You know, so... So what I learned over the course of my career was there's a, a lot of timing and luck, but you really, I think, learn aligning yourself with a strong team and strong investors that are going to be there for the long haul really is what ended up, you know, serving me the best. So eventually you found the company GiveZooks. What did they do? Uh, we were one of the first companies to do crowdfunding, focused on bringing charitable donations online, either either via, you know, campaigns or online events or um, basically trying to to bring that whole industry online. Okay. And they eventually get bought as well? Yes, they did. They did. We sold the company in 2014. Oh, so fairly recently. So we get to this point. So now you're six or seven companies or maybe even more bought, sold, bought, sold. And Gazooks, you found it, it gets sold. Now what? What was your plan after that? My initial plan was to head for the spa. <laughs> I remember I booked, still the there? <laughs> I booked the trip like two days after this the, this deal was signed. Yeah, um, but I really, I really didn't know. Um, I had never kind of been in this the situation with regard to you know now what? Yeah, um, and you know not having a paycheck, not having company company, not really, you know, I just really didn't know what I wanted to do next. Did I want to do another startup? Did I want to do something on my own? Did I just want to take a break? So I spent the time, probably took about six months to really talk with friends, colleagues, you know, hit some webinars, read some books. And then I decided, well, I wanted to get involved as a, as an angel investor, an advisor. I went back to uh, Astia who had helped support us at GiveZooks as a, as being a woman entrepreneur. Um, and that was their mission, was to, to connect women entrepreneurs with expertise and funding to launch their own ventures. And so uh, I decided that's where I wanted to, to get involved. Why did you choose not to go back to work at that point? A couple points. I think I didn't, I didn't know where I would wanted to focus. Did I want to, did I want to do another big thing um, at what level? And then I also felt a little bit I had pursued, I actually did put my name in for a few jobs and, you know, talked to some people about some jobs. Didn't really, there, there was a bit of an ageism thing going on. Yeah. The jobs didn't come to pass? No, they didn't. Um, you know, it was, it was really hard. Yeah. It was hard to, to take that, you know, saying, hey, wait, you know, it doesn't happen on the other, if, you know, if I was a male, <laughs> probably uh, not as serious of uh, an issue, but it, it just didn't happen. This podcast is for people our age because I'm the same age and I feel the same. I think there's rampant ageism out there. I mean, how did you, how did it manifest to you and, and were you able to ever call it out? I didn't call mm -hmm. it out. Um, I, I just, you know, you don't get the response. You don't get 
the respect almost yeah. in a conversation. And, you know, no one takes you seriously. Really? Like, Even though you've you know, been a multi, you'd been a CEO, <laughs> a founder. And right. Wow. Okay. It's almost like, do you really do this? Why do you want to do this? And I think that is part cultural for man, men and women. That mm-hmm. People get to a certain age and people are think you're done. And there's a lot of us that aren't done. Right. And a lot of us that have a lot to bring to the table. And I think it's just unfortunate that there is this perception that, that this, there's a time to retire. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a very individual thing. I, I agree. I agree. And I don't think there's a, you know, a set clock for anybody. You decide not to take another job and uh, you're involved in Astia. Uh, mm-hmm. And then how did you kind of start thinking forward of what you're going to do next? Because you're not done. Oh, well, I, you know, the thing that was still lacking for me was feeling a part of building something and growing something, uh, being part of a t- team. It's, it's, it was so ingrained in me and what I had done so many times that I really missed that whole social engagement passion of, of a startup and the community within, within which I would be thriving. And so I said, well, there's got to be something else. <laughs> I mean, I really do enjoy, you know, working with uh, but, uh, the Astia group and, the, and this portfolio of companies that we support there, but it's very ad hoc. Right. So I, I felt like I really wanted to get into something that had a bit more of a definition, a structure to it. I was mm-hmm. looking for a like-minded community and of people and experiences. And I just wanted to, and I, and I also felt like I had given out so much that it was time to replenish. You know, I felt like I wanted to learn new things, bring new things, integrate some, you know, do some reading, do some exploring. And I just was looking for something that brought all of that together. And that brought me to the Stanford Distinguished Career Institute program. I think this is fascinating. So tell us what is that and, and tell us about the program and how do you apply and who applies, et cetera. Well, it's it's Stanford's Distinguished Careers Institute. It's a fellowship program, lasts for one calendar year, and you can you know head to their website and and fill out an application. Phil would be very happy to entertain your application, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's open to you know all all people of you know have had their professional careers, but they still don't feel like they're done. They still would like to have impact in some additional way. And, you know, basically you kind of lay out two or three narratives that, that maybe you would be interested. Why would you want to, why would you be involved in what, what are the kinds of things you would like to consider maybe for next chapter? And so there are 38 of us that went through this program, people from all different kinds of professional backgrounds, public health, finance, you know, law, tech. I mean, it's just a very wide and very diverse group. A lot of different representation from international as well. And we spend the year basically going to classes, experimenting with, um, you know, a lot of different topics and areas that maybe we'd always wanted to pursue, but never had the time. We also get involved in a lot of volunteering and mentoring exercises. Um, I was very active with, uh, you know, Stanford Women in Business. I was involved in the Lean Launchpad classes where basically, uh, uh, you know, five or six students bring a venture 
and go through 12 weeks and basically try to pull it off with a business plan all the way to launching a product. Mm, okay. Um, and then, you know, just really being a resource available to women in the GSB program to if they wanted to, you know, talk about what's it like and, you know, to build a, a startup from scratch and those kinds of things. So a lot of a lot of mentorship, intergenerational learning opportunities, which was really probably one of the more, my more favorite parts of the program. Yeah, the intergenerational part of it. Is it with current graduate and undergraduate students? Yes, yes. Because okay. we could we could take classes that were either undergrad classes or graduate classes, depending on you know professor approval or demand of the class. And so we would often find ourselves sitting to you know maybe a master's or a PhD student, um, or it could be a second year you know undergrad. And the conversations that would stem were, were very interesting and then sometimes extend to a cup of coffee, you know, after class yeah. or we were part of a project team that might have four or five other students where, you know, you had to deliver a project at the end of the end of the quarter and you had to work with, you know, a team of very different folks. So it was it was really fun. So what was your your project, sort of your thesis that you decided to pursue while there? At first, when I went in, I was really interested in the whole, well, there are three pillars of the program based on purpose, community, and wellness, and what impacts those three different pillars have on longevity. And so I was quite interested from my own personal perspective, you know, how I could really more seriously understand my own personal purpose and where I stand in wellness and things I could do differently, and then the benefits of a a community like we got to know. Um, and then there were also classes and I ultimately really pursued the longevity to the extent that I got involved with a um, an accelerator in the fall with a couple of different uh, venture groups that was focused on longevity, the future of longevity. Because if nothing else, as an entrepreneur, I see the business opportunity associated with the sheer numbers of baby boomers moving into this next phase of life. And what did you find as you pursued it? I think there's I think there's a lot of basis for having a real strong sense of purpose, a well-defined sense of purpose heading into these later years in life, really uh, not underestimating the value of personal relationships and strong community. Um, and we certainly have heard this over and over, you know, during COVID times about the isolation that people feel. And then also wellness and, you know, how how that comes to bear as well. You, you know, if it's not just living longer, it's living better longer. And I, I think that's just a, it's a, you know, it's something we probably all at some level understand. But I think taking time to really pursue it, understand See the see the research results. See the, you know the the basic um, you know science that's involved there, and the actual numbers is uh, something that was very, very interesting to me. So if I'm you know if I'm listening and I'm thinking about doing a fellowship, whether it be at Stanford or Harvard or Notre Dame or Texas or wherever they do them, I mean, as you think back on it, how would you advise doing that? I I just say go for it. Uh, <laughs> I don't even think it has to be one of the formal ones necessarily, because I think the value of getting back into an educational environment with that intergenerational experience is is somewhat transformative. At least I found it to be. We will put in the show notes how to apply, because I think it's, I have, as I told you when we were talking earlier, I, I certainly have looked into it myself. So 
now your third act. So you've got you're you're done with your jobs or your formal jobs. <laughs> yes. You're still pursuing longevity. You're still doing the and you're really involved in Asia Angels. I mean, how would you characterize that in terms of your third act? Well, I think the common denominator or thread for me is I continue to kind of deepen my focus and impact on elevating women in business. So, you know, I've done that throughout my own career, focused on myself. And now I'm trying to say, how can I help others and help help lift them up? And I'm extending that now by my involvement with uh, Stanford Women on Boards. Okay. So I started working with Stanford Women on Boards in November to help, obviously, with the California legal requirements to more diverse boards. And now NASDAQ has the same requirement. And I, I really, it's, it's, it's just a really unique situation to be able to match corporate, corporate board requirements with some really stellar candidates and, um, you know, hopefully help them achieve their, their goals of gaining a board seat. Many of my friends who are sort of at senior levels of business are asked to advise uh, startups and I know I've done some of it myself. And I, one thing I've found difficult, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, is, uh, and I was at a big company, so it's a little harder. You know, you're looking at a startup, and maybe they're making $10 million of that. And, and, you know, how do you, what do you think best translates from your sort of multi-decades of experience as senior marketing person to looking at some newer companies and helping advise them? Operational experience is really comes into play. First, evaluating the market. Are you being realistic about what the market is and the opportunity is? I think that's often sometimes where they get caught up. I think it's much bigger, much easier to basically much easier to actually get after than it really is and underestimate what it might cost and the op- and the significance of the, of the market opportunity. So that's probably number one. It can be a really good sanity check for companies there. I'm not always, you know, it's not always what they want to hear, but I can be a good sanity check. And then I think it's just, you know, things to look for, look around the corner um, on, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, things are going really well, really, really well here, but what about the next stage of growth? How are you going to, how are you hiring in these areas? What are you looking at here? And I think that's where they, you know, they appreciate the advice. The challenge is the value in that. I think for me that, you know, it's like, yeah, you like my advice. You like to pick my brain, but nobody's willing to pay for it, right? Yeah. How do you monetize that? And for a long time, that was a hard thing for me because I ascribe value, you know, somebody's going to pay me that kind of defines my value. Mm-hmm. Well, that was that was probably my issue. And I really need to, to look at it. And that's part of, you know, what I'm trying to do is to say it's it's not really the concept of getting paid. It's the concept of, you know, what's the outcome of the information and the, the advice that I'm giving? Um, what are the results that they either they get or or I feel from from advising them? And and as a woman giving advice to younger women, what are the some of the one or two key points in terms of where you might see them holding themselves back. So you talked about operational experience and I was just looking at an investment the other day and I was like, oh, their revenue projections are so inflated. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, was <laughs> cutting them in a quarter, not even having them. I'm like, no, 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 no. And then I was reworking the spreadsheet, right? Yeah, no, this isn't going to work. But, you know, that that's the monetary part of it. That's the financials, right? But as you advise women CEOs, women founders, having been one yourself, what are you telling them and what do you... 
I think I re- try to reinforce, well, I've never done this before, or I'm a first-time CEO, so I don't know this, or I don't know that, and I'm not sure whether I should do this, or, or I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And I, you know, I think I try to zone in on, with them, the fact that there's a lot of people out there that haven't done it before. Yeah. And that's never stopped them. And you, you've got this idea, you've got this, you know, it's your passion or you've spent years researching this and you really want to get after it. And nobody else is doing that. So I try to reaffirm and give them confidence. I think it's something I wished I would have had mm-hmm. when I was a younger person. It was like, you know, where are the, were those mentors? They weren't there. They did not exist. <laughs> So given that we exist, encouraging them to reach out, I think oftentimes they don't want to reach out. They're fearful of reach out. You know, they're embarrassed to ask the question. Uh, they think they should know it all by now or or whatever. So I try to allay those fears. I, you know, I try to present myself as somebody who's been there. And, you know, there's no such thing as a stupid question. It's stupid if you don't ask the question, you know. Right. So, so, you know. I think that's where I really try to work with them the most. They can get anybody to go through their numbers. They can get, you know, there's a lot of, of resources and other, you know, somebody else to help them figure out their social media strategy or whatever. But it's it's like, I think it gets into the, the female dynamic of, of self-doubt and <laughs> imposter syndrome and all mm-hmm. those kinds of things that, you know, we just, we're harder on ourselves for whatever reason it is. You know, I just try to reassure them and and boost their egos and help them, you know, get back up and get after it. Since you left your job at Gazooks and you've done the fellowship and worked on longevity and you're advising them, how's your sense of identity changed? You know, I, I really defined myself by my title and who I worked for for, for so long. And I really had a hard time of, you know, I, I was a single woman for a long time, made my way in the world. You know, I just not, you know, I just felt like, wait, no, I'm not getting paid by someone. Therefore, what am I worth? And so I think a lot, I've gotten around that. I've gotten beyond that by saying to myself, I think, you know, Carol, it's it's more about the outcome of, of either the advice you're giving, the whether it's investment dollars that you're giving, whether it's mentorship time, you know, s- sitting over a coffee, working to help, you know, find a board, board seat match. These are all things that in the end, you know, I'm helping to, to elevate another woman or many women to the next level in their own careers, in, in the business world. And to me, that's what I, you know, so much of, of my own career focus was about was to try to, to rise up. And I really feel like that's my mission and that's, that's what I do. I think if the women that you mentor were here, they'd be thanking you over and over and over again. So hopefully you're getting a lot of that feedback from the people that you talk with. I do. I do. And I, you know, I hear it's, you can tell when you speak with someone, you know, 18 months ago, and then they're checking in with you again around Christmas and the holidays and, and, you know, things like that. So I, I do know, and I do feel it that, that the time we spend together is of value. And uh, I, I, more than anything, I just enjoy hearing from them and, and finding out that they're doing well and they're, they're often in pursuing what they want to do. So, and being successful. It's sort of a unique obligation that many of us in our generation have being somewhat the first women in whatever we did. You have to keep talking to people, right? You have to keep reaching out to younger women and 
telling them they can do it and pushing them to get past all their fears. So our audience mm-hmm. is growing of younger people. So hopefully they'll listen to this and uh, get some inspiration from it. So we've talked about not being done yet, um, and you clearly have mastered many, many things since uh, you retired from your second act, so to speak. So what aren't you done with yet? <laughs> well, I, I, I got to tell you, you're a real inspiration with your podcast series. <laughs> well, thank I mean, you. I think, it's, I think it's a really cool thing. I've always toyed the idea of maybe writing a book. I, I don't know. Uh, we did some memoir classes at that was also part of the fellowship program, which was really fun and interesting to do. So kind of has gotten my mind rolling on that. You know, maybe even a small business, kind of a little more community-based small business with my husband, some more travel, obviously, and pursuing a board, maybe another board opportunity if if the right opportunity presents itself. So I just find that the more I engage, the more opportunities reveal themselves. I totally agree. I, through this, this is how you and I met, that you reached yes, out to listen to the podcast. And so <laughs> it's been wonderful to talk. And I, I'm thrilled that you've been on the show. So thanks so much, Carol. And we look forward to continuing to hear more about your story. Well, I really appreciate the time, Liz, and, and really lots more success with the third act. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the third act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.